Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to begin at verse 11. In the first part of the chapter, Paul continued on with the theme that he had been speaking on ever since uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, really, where he's defending his own authority and talking about his own apostolic credentials. And in chapter 12, last time together, we saw how Paul dealt with the whole issue of visions and revelations, the most eminent apostles, that's what Paul called his uh, church leader opponents in the city of Corinth, these super apostles, basically, these sort of arrogant men who thought that they had come along further than the apostle Paul. They had no doubt claimed to have spectacular visions and revelations. Paul said, well, I had some too, but he doesn't fill us in on any of the juicy details. He just tells us of what the spiritual upshot was of the experience in his life, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Last week we saw how Paul rejoiced. He rejoiced in God because of the thorn in the flesh. Paul's point wasn't to tell us about the vision, but tell us about the thorn in the flesh and what God worked in his life through the thorn in the flesh. And he was bragging about it. You couldn't shut Paul up about it. Like an obnoxious grandparent showing the kids. Let me tell you about my thorn in the flesh, Paul says. Let me tell you about the great work God done, has done in my life through it. So he continues on with this thought here in verse 11. I have become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you. For nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to the other churches? Except that I myself was not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. Well, Paul vacillates back and forth between being very sarcastic and dead on serious with the Corinthian Christians. Again, he says, I've become a fool in boasting. You guys twisted my arm. You made me brag. And so I bragged about my thorn in the flesh. So I was boasting, but I was boasting as a fool. Paul's almost apologizing for writing so much about himself because he would much rather write about Jesus. As a matter of fact, he says there in verse 11, he says, for I ought to have been commended by you. You all should have been commending me. To commend means to praise. It almost sounds arrogant, doesn't it? It almost sounds arrogant for Paul to say, you Corinthians should have been praising me. Friends, he's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking truthfully. Quite objectively speaking, the Corinthian Christians should have been proud of the Apostle Paul. Now, why? Why is this so important to Paul? Why is it so important to him that the Corinthian Christians prize him and commend him? Please, friends, please, please understand this. The things that they despised in Paul were areas in Paul's life where he was an awful lot like Jesus. In that he was weak, in that he seemed lowly, in that he was humble, in that he didn't have the flash of success and power and, you know, authority. And everybody, wow, look at that man. Jesus didn't have that, and Paul didn't have it either. And Paul knew, if they don't like those things in me, they don't like them in Jesus either. If you love Jesus, you're going to love the people who are like him. If you don't like people who are like Jesus, then you probably don't like Jesus very much. 
as much as you say you do, at least. And that was the problem. Paul says, you should have been commending me. And says, says, for nothing, I was be- in nothing I was behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. You see, again, Paul thought this boasting was foolish, but he wasn't doing it for his sake. He was doing it for the sake of the Corinthian Christians. They were not defending Paul's character and standing as an apostle before the most eminent apostles. Again, do you remember what the force of that is in the original language? It's like Paul's saying mockingly, the super-duper apostles. Oh, I'm just a regular apostle, but oh, they're the super-duper apostles. And Paul's saying, listen, it's not so much the presence of these most eminent apostles that bother Paul. They're always going to be with the church. No, my friends, it was their influence among the Corinthian Christians that bothered Paul. He says, why do you despise me? Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Paul says, listen, if they want to match me miracle for miracle, just take a look at my ministry. It's there. Paul, as we know from the book of Acts, was a man who was used in a mighty way of God to to do things in miracles and signs and wonders. These were evidence of Paul's apostolic standing. And he goes, I don't see why you get it. And then he goes in verse 13, for what is it in which you are inferior to the other churches? In other words, what, did I not do any signs and wonders and miracles among you? Are you guys inferior in that? And he goes, oh, no, wait, excuse me, Paul says, verse 13. You guys were inferior in one way. I did not, I myself was not a burden to you. In other words, please get this, it's so rich with irony. Paul's saying, oh, you know, I'm sorry, you guys were inferior to the other churches in what way? You didn't support me when I was among you. I had to pay my own way. And then Paul says, forgive me this wrong. Remember the comedian years ago would go in and his line was, excuse me. And that's what Paul's saying here. Oh, you didn't support me. Excuse me. Forgive me this wrong that I didn't hit you up for money when I was among you. Forgive me this, please, Paul says. Well, he's about done with this foolish boasting. He hopes he's driven the point home. He's spoken with all he can of the power of the Holy Spirit, with biting sarcasm, with direct hits to the heart. And now Paul is going to put away his sharp surgical instrument. He's going to get out one of those big wooden mallets that you see in the cartoons. You see, if the, if the insightful argument and the, the biting sarcasm and the delicate dealing with Scripture and all that, if that didn't hit you, then Paul says in verse 14, Now for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? You know what he says, beginning here in verse 14? Okay, enough with this. I'm coming to town. And things better be cleaned up by the time I get there. That's what Paul's saying. I'm coming. 
And for the third time, and he says, listen, now when I come, let me get this straight. First of all, I'm not going to be a burden to you. I will not be burdensome to you. Paul says to the Corinthian Christians that when he comes, though he is going to receive a collection for the saints in Judea, he's already talked about that in the letter, but that's not for Paul. Paul is not going to receive any money for his personal support among the Corinthians. He will continue his previous practice among the Corinthian Christians of supporting himself, and he will not be burdensome. Paul says, don't think that I'm writing this letter just so you guys align my pockets. Forget that. Get out of your mind. I'm not going to ask for a cent from you for myself when I'm among you. I will not be burdensome among you. Now, please, don't think for a moment that this was Paul's constant practice. Paul, among other churches, was very freely supported. But among the Corinthian Christians, he knew that their spiritual dynamic and their suspicion was so founded and deep within their heart that it was best for him to say, no, I'm not going to take anything from you. You see, a minister can be burdensome to a congregation by being paid. He, he can be burdensome to a congregation by receiving support when it's not appropriate, when the money's not there. I mean, look, if it's in a pastor's heart, he's going to be doing it whether or not he's paid. If he can be compensated, and so more of his time can go to the work of the ministry and prayer and the study of the Word of God and the the ministry of the church, praise God. But if the money's not there, what? Are you going to stop serving now? No, your service might be different because you have to earn a living some other way also, but you're still going to serve. And so Paul says, I'm not going to be a burden to you. And sometimes ministers are a burden because they're being supported by a congregation when it's not appropriate. It's just not there. I would say other times also, a minister can be burdensome to a congregation when they simply receive too much support. The minister shouldn't be overpaid. Now, God forbid that I, as a minister of the gospel, should stand before you and buy into that moment for idea, you know, well, let's keep the pastor humble by paying him hardly anything. And uh, I praise God that that's not the attitude among the leadership of this church. And I believe that I'm very generously and very fairly compensated uh, by this congregation. And uh, it's just something I don't have to think about. And that's how it should be. But friends, it is possible, and we hear about it from time to time. Maybe not so much in individual churches, but you sure hear about it in prominent ministries, don't you? Mansions, gold-plated fixtures, air-conditioned dog houses, (laughs) several, you know, hey, let's face it, you know, jet fuel's not as cheap as it used to be. And so you got to dig deep and give to Brother Jones or Brother whatever, you know, right? Because it's, it's a lot to support there. Adam Clark, a commentator from about 150 years ago, wrote this. He who labors for the cause of God should be supported by the cause of God. But woe to that man who aggrandizes himself and grows rich by the spoils of the faithful. And to him especially who has made a fortune out of the pennies of the poor. In such a man's heart, the love of money must have its throne. As to his professed spirituality, it's nothing. He's a whited sepulcher and an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Adam, tell us how you really feel. (laughs) Well, it's true. So it's never the job of a minister to be a burdensome, a burdensome thing, I should say, to the people whom he's ministering to. Instead, they should have the heart, as Paul describes here, and this is so precious in verse 14, 
please take a look at verse 14 where Paul says, For I do not seek yours, but you. This is the testimony of every godly minister. They do not serve for what they can get from God's people, but for what they can give to God's people. They're shepherds, not hirelings. Now, a lot of times people think of this merely in terms of money. But I have to say that uh, I've seen uh, this heart in an ungodly way among pastors apply to a lot more than money. In other words, they may not be serving a congregation for what they can get from the people financially, but they're serving for what they can get from the people emotionally or to feed their ego. They need the strokes. They need the praise. They need to be in front of an audience. They need the accolades. They go away shaking their head, saying, God must not be with them. They don't get a certain amount of, oh, pastor, that was a fine message afterwards. Friends, that's, that's the heart of a hireling. That's seeking yours, not you. But Paul had the heart of Jesus. Jesus looks to you tonight and he says, I don't want what's yours, I want you. I want you, Jesus says. We often think that what God really wants is what we have. Okay, Lord, I'll give you this. I'll give you that. I'll give you it all. And God says, listen, what I really want is I want you. Jesus selflessly seeks our own good. And he has a complete heart for us. Not what he can get from us, but for us. Alan Redpath said, Paul is only a faint shadow of the Lord Jesus. And if these qualities are found in his life, it's only because they were found completely in the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, that's the heart of Paul. And along the same lines, he says here in verse 14, for the children, not not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Because listen, I'm not going to expect you to pay my way when I come. I'm like a spiritual father to you. You're like my children. It's the parents' job to provide for the children. It's not the children's job to provide for the parents. And this explains part of the reason why Paul did not want to receive support from the Corinthian Christians. He was their spiritual father. They were his spiritual children. And it made sense to him that they should not feel burdened to support him. But can I point something out here? At the same time, this is not a compliment towards the Corinthian Christians. Since Paul did gratefully receive support from other churches that he founded. In other words, it's not like Paul had this policy. If I founded a church, I won't receive support from it. No, he received support from the Philippian church. He founded that one. That wasn't Paul's thinking. Instead, it's as if Paul is saying, you Corinthian Christians are not mature enough to support me yet. You're still spiritual children. When you grow up a little bit, then you can be partners with me in the work and support me. But until then, I'm glad to support myself. But you guys are children. I won't, I won't you know, take money from kids. No, that's the attitude of Paul. Because he certainly didn't have that attitude towards other churches. He wants the Corinthian Christians to grow up a little bit. And then they can really be partners with him in the ministry. No, instead, Paul says, oh, verse 15, isn't this precious? I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. 
Paul did not resent the lack of support from the Corinthian Christians. So it cost him money out of his pocket to live among them and to minister to them. He had to pay his own way, his own expenses. He didn't go around with his chip on his, with his grudge. Well, these Corinthian Christians, cheapskates, and a bunch of spiritually mature babies. No! Now listen, I'm certainly not trying to tell that Paul wouldn't have appreciated it if they were different. But Paul would have appreciated it more for what it said about the Corinthian Christians than for what it did for him. For himself, Paul was glad to give. You know Paul's attitude? He goes, hey, the Corinthian Christians won't give to me. He goes, fine, it's my opportunity to give to them. And the Lord says it's more blessed to give than to receive. So he says, I'll gladly spend and be spent. Now I want you to notice something, my friends. Paul had this heart even though the Corinthian Christians were unappreciative of it. Matter of fact, do you see what he says there in verse 15? Doesn't this hit you? Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. Paul says the more I give to you, the more I sacrifice for you, the more I lay down for you, the more you say, he's a weakling. He's not like the super-duper apostles. You know, the super-duper apostles come in and they say, we're not showing up unless you give us a big honorarium and put us up in a nice hotel and, you know, pay all our traveling expenses and let us do this and that. And the Corinthian Christians heard that and they go, ooh, they must be important. Now, Paul had a completely different attitude. He goes, yeah, I got to pay my own way. Praise God, I will gladly spend and be spent. And the Corinthians looked at that and they said, Boy, he must not be very good. And the more he gave, the less they loved him. There is hurt in those words. Yet Paul would not allow that hurt to cripple him or even to rob his joy in serving and living. He still says, I'd very gladly spend and be spent for the Corinthian Christians. Friends, what can anybody do to a man like that? He gives more, they love him less. Paul says, I don't care, I'm doing it for Jesus. What can you do to a man like that? You hurt him, you hurt his feelings, you despise him, you ill-treat him. What's his attitude? Hey, praise the Lord, I'm doing it for Jesus. Doesn't matter. God will deal with you. And say, oh, you hurt me. I don't think I'm going to be able to serve the Lord again for five years. They don't appreciate me. The more I love them, the less they love me. I need just to go away and get healed for a while. And get more. Just forget about it. Put it away. Why not gladly spend and be spent? You know, friends, we can give. And give in any number of ways. You can write a check from your checking account. You can give your time. You can give your interest. You can give your effort. Tonight you're here giving your attendance and your interest. But do we resent it when we give? Or do we resent it when we serve? Say, how, how do you know? How do you know if you have Paul's heart here? Well, let me tell you if you have Paul's heart. Easy way to tell. How do you react when your service is unappreciated? Or when you're even, you know, returned evil for when you do something good? When somebody hurts you, and you, you know that old saying, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, how is it, you know, when that comes back upon you? Do you resent it? You say, well, forget this. I'll never, you know, 
that's the last they'll see of that. And I'm, you know what? You just revealed your heart. You're not doing it for the Lord. You're doing it for men. You're doing it for praise. You're doing it for accolades. You're not doing it with the heart of Jesus. Paul's service was totally unappreciated by the Corinthian Christians, but he didn't resent it. Instead, he says, I'll very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Very gladly. And then he goes on, verse 16, but be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Well, now he's speaking sarcastically again, right? Oh, I really was crafty. I really caught you with guile. You see, he was accused by some of the Corinthian Christians of being crafty. And their accusation probably went like this. This is probably what, the, what his opponents, what the most eminent apostles were saying about Paul. They probably said, well, sure, Paul's not going to take any support money from you, but he's going to trick you. He's going to take this collection, supposedly for the saints in Jerusalem, and as soon as he leaves town, it's going into his own pocket. He's going to make a nice piece of change off of you. And Paul says, oh yeah, I'm being really crafty. I've caught you with guile and I've tricked you superbly. He's being sarcastic, of course. But do you see the kind of accusations that Paul had to deal with? Friends, a lesser man. Many of us would have just, forget it. I'm never going back to Corinthians again. I'm ripping up this letter. I'm never going there again. Let them do their own thing. Let them just have those most eminent apostles. They get what they deserve. No, Paul wouldn't have that heart. You know what I think is interesting is that to find how Paul's enemies would accuse him. Paul's enemies accused him of being in it for the money. Now, of being crafty and sort of trying to trick a collection here. Now, do you understand, my friends, that that is so far from Paul's heart and mind? I mean, that is, if there was ever a baseless accusation, that was it. And they stand back and say, how could they ever make such an accusation? I'll tell you how. Because the most eminent apostles, that's what they were in it for. And you know how we work. We often assign to others the motives we have in ourselves. If it's our motive, if it's our heart, we say, well, it must be their heart too, when it's not. And that's exactly how they're thinking. They could not bear the fact that Paul didn't care about money in the ministry, so they assigned their motives to him. By the way, before I leave this verse, let me say one other thing. Some people have actually thought that Paul was speaking seriously here. And and that he was admitting that he was being crafty and using guile. You know what guile is? It's deception. And saying that Paul's being crafty and using deception in his ministry to the Corinthian Christians. And some people have said, well, you see, Paul says that it's okay to deceive people and to be crafty and to trick them in the name of, of religion. You know, like to trick people into receiving Jesus. To trick people into doing things religiously. See, that's like what Paul's saying. It's okay here. No, no, no. Not by any means. It's a terrible, terrible doctrine. Total misunderstanding of this passage. So Paul says, basically, look at verse 7. Did I take advantage of you? Look at me. Look at my associates. Did any of us, did any of us leave Corinth with your money in our pockets? We didn't take advantage of you. Not then, not now, not in the future. Just forget about it. Just remember how our conduct was before you, and that settles the issue. Now he goes on, verse 19, and boy, again, now he gets out the mallet. He goes, again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? 
We speak before God and Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall not be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and licentiousness which they have practiced. It's an important section. Take it back from verse 19 here. Paul begins by saying again, Do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God and Christ. You see, Paul's concerned that as he defends himself before the Corinthian Christians, that some may take it just as an excuse-making. You know what it's like when people are making excuses, right? Well, you know, it's not like this. It's not like this. And, and, and you know, you could see how Paul's opponents would say, well, look, Paul's just making all kinds of excuses. You don't have to listen to him. Paul says, what, you think I'm excusing myself? I'm speaking before God and Christ. Paul is not making excuses. He has nothing to excuse. Instead, he boldly says, we speak before God in Christ. Paul was proclaiming the truth before God. He was not excusing himself before the Corinthian Christians. Instead, he says, we do all things, beloved, for your edification. Everything Paul did for the Corinthian Christians, he did to build them up in the Lord. Every letter he wrote, every visit he made, every prayer he prayed was with one goal to build up the Corinthian Christians in Jesus Christ. His heart was for them, not for himself. Now, if Paul's opponents, the most eminent apostles mentioned before, if they were to speak honestly, they wouldn't say, we do all things, beloved, for your edification. No, if they were to speak honestly, they would say, we do all things, beloved, for our edification. We do it so that we can be built up. But Paul says, I'm not like that. I do it for your edification. No. You're issuing a wake-up call to the Corinthians. He says, for I fear lest when I come, I shall find you not such as I wish. In other words, Paul was worried that when he came among the Corinthian Christians, he'd find the same old problems and that they would not have repented. Just so they know exactly the kind of problems he's worried about, he lists it for you there in verse 20. Did you see it? Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Friends, when those things characterize the church of Jesus Christ, the church is slipping into carnality, and it must be stopped. A stand must be made against it. It's got to be repented of and changed. And Paul says, I don't want to find any of this when I come among you. These were the fruit of the worldly thinking that the Corinthian Christians had bought into. And these must change before Paul comes for his third visit to Corinth. If the Corinthian Christians were still showing this ungodly fruit from the worldly thinking, you know what Paul says? Look at this carefully in verse 20, because the way he words, it's a little hard to understand, but you'll get it. He says, For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you as I wish. You understand what that means, right? Paul says, I don't want to find you in a bad way. Because look at what he responds. The next line in verse 20. And that I shall be found by you, such as you do not wish. You get what he's saying here? Paul's saying, listen, um, 
if you guys aren't in a state pleasing to me before the Lord, Paul's saying, not him personally, but him as, a, as the Lord's apostle, if you guys aren't in a state pleasing to me, then I'm not going to be in a state pleasing to you. All right, you know what this is about, right? It's like the parents with the kids. You know what? If I come home and that room's not cleaned up, I'm not going to be happy. And if I'm not happy, you're not going to be happy. That's what he's saying. He goes, listen, I'm going to come and I'm going to take a look at the Corinthian church. And if it's marked by these things of the flesh, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, if those things are characterizing the scene, Paul says, I'm not going to be happy. And believe you me, here's the mallet. If I'm not happy, you're not going to be happy. And then he says, verse 21, and lest when I come again, my God may humble me among you. You see, if the Corinthian Christians were still stuck in their worldly thinking, Paul would be humbled among them. He'd have reason to say, man, I must not be a very good apostle. I must not be a very good leader. Because these Corinthian Christians just won't respond to me. Now, that wouldn't be the whole truth, would it? But it would still be humbling for Paul. But do you see his pastor's heart here in verse 21? He says, unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and not repented of their uncleanness. If the Corinthian Christians were mired in their worldliness when Paul came the third time, he would be angry. He would be firm. But he would also be humbled, and he would also mourn. As much as anything, the worldliness of the Corinthian Christians grieved Paul, and it made him mourn. John Calvin said, Paul reveals to us the mind of a true and sincere pastor when he says that he will look on the sins of others with grief. No, because it can't be like this. What would make him mourn? He says, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and licentiousness of which they have practiced. Did you see that? Paul's anger and mourning would not be directed towards those who had sinned. That's not what he's saying. Paul's not saying, I'm going to be angry at those who have sinned. What does he say? He says, I'm going to direct my anger to those who have sinned before and have not repented. There's a big difference there, isn't there? It's not towards those who have sinned. It's towards those who have sinned and haven't repented. Paul wasn't asking for perfection. He was asking for repentance. So he continues on into chapter 13, verse 1. This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I've told you before and foretell as if I were present with you a second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. There's the mallet. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who's not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. 
Paul says, look, third time, I'm coming to you now. He says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Now, he says that for two reasons. First of all, he's saying, you know what? First visit, that was one witness. Second visit, that was a second witness. Third visit, that's my third witness. I'm ready to decide the case now. You see, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Who was that a direction to? The judges of Israel. Basically what he's saying, I'm coming as a judge. I've got the evidence, it's before me, I'm ready to make a judgment. And I have enough evidence to write, if I come again, I will not spare. I'm not holding back. Now see how he develops into it in the next verse, but consider just for a moment those words, I will not spare. Friends, the situation among the Corinthian Christians called for strong leadership. Paul says, you guys, if you don't respond to the, to the instruction I give you, I'm taking out the mallet. Now, a Christian pastor must never let authority corrupt into authoritarianism. Friends, there's something wrong. The pastor, the minister's authority isn't being respected. Paul says, I'm not going to stand for it. I will not spare. Matter of fact, if you want to notice, he says, boy, verse 3, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. Now, please, there's two things I want you to notice. First, the phrase, Christ speaking in me. That was the source of Paul's authority. Paul's authority wasn't Paul. Paul's authority was as a representative of Jesus Christ. And my friends, might I say that that's how any pastor, not on the same apostolic level as Paul, I'm not presuming that for myself or anyone else, not at all. Simply on the measure of authority. That is the authority that a pastor has. It's the authority of God's word. It's the authority of righteousness. As a personal thing, the pastor has little authority. It is a representative of God's word. As someone who's there to bring forth God's word, that's authority. So he says, puts that context as proof of Christ speaking in me, but you see, notice he says, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me. In other words, he goes, you Corinthians, you want to see some power, huh? Most eminent apostles come along here, and they're powerful, they're flashy. Oh boy, they seem to have so much authority. Wow, they're powerful. Paul says, you want power? I'll show you power. Don't clean up your act before I come. I'll show you all the power you want to see. You want to see it? I will not spare when I come among you. Friends, I, I think Paul's saying, you want to see the proof of Christ speaking in me? Fine. When I come the third time, you're going to see the power of God in my rebuke as I clean house. So, clean it up before I come. Don't you see that this was the earnest desire of Paul's heart? You've got to say, Paul's talking tough here, isn't he? He certainly is. But he doesn't want to be tough towards the Corinthians. He wants them to get it right. So that he doesn't have to be like this when he comes. At the same time, notice the analogy he brings in verse 4. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. You see, just as Jesus displayed weakness, but now reigns in power, so Paul appeared to be weak. But he says, I'm going to come in power, just like Jesus. 
You see, it would seem that in their immaturity, the Corinthian Christians were all overawed with outward displays of power and authority, but real spiritual authority expressed in meekness and humbleness, not flim-flam and deception and, and uh, authoritarianism and all those other things. That's the marks of the most eminent apostles, not a Paul. Paul wants them to do what he's going to prescribe here in verse 5. If the Corinthians would just do what Paul describes starting in verse 5, it would fix everything. Listen, he says, examine yourselves as to whether or not you are in the faith. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Oh, friends, if the Corinthian Christians would just do that. Paul asked the Corinthian Christians to consider a sobering question. Am I really a Christian? He wants them all to ask that. Now let me talk about it first in the broader context of what Paul's speaking about here. And then I want to drive the point home to each and every one of us here this evening. You see, the Corinthian Christians were all into examining Paul. Look at Paul. Look at the way he speaks. Look at the way he looks. Look at the vocabulary he uses. Look at the letters he writes. Look at this. Look at what this most eminent apostle says. But look at what that most eminent apostle says. Look at Paul. Look at this. And you know what Paul says? He goes, stop examining me and start examining yourself. Stop proving me or testing me, Paul says, and prove yourselves. That's the point of what he's saying. That was the Corinthian Christians' problem. They were brilliant analysts of Paul's life. They didn't know anything about their own. And I say brilliant sarcastically because they missed Paul's life entirely. They wouldn't even look at their own. Friends, what about that question for you? Examine yourselves as to whether or not you're in the faith. Prove yourselves. Now, we are rightly concerned that every believer have the assurance of salvation and know how to endure the attacks that come from Satan in this area. It's a terrible thing to see a Christian, perhaps a young Christian, attacked with this thing. Maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe it was just all this. Maybe I don't. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a... And you want to you put your arms around that person and strengthen them and encourage them. Say, no, stand up. You know, come on. And you want to help give them that assurance of their salvation. That's a precious thing. Friends, at the same time, we also soberly understand that there are some who assume or presume that they are Christians when they are not. Perhaps they think that church attendance makes them a Christian. Perhaps they think that a generally moral life makes them a Christian. But it's a challenge to everybody. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? We're often very ready to examine and test others. But first and foremost, we must criticize and examine and test ourselves. What a difficult thing that is. Somebody's very critical towards others, but not towards themselves. I can deal with it either way, really, with other people. I can deal with the people who are like happy-go-lucky towards themselves and towards other people. And I can deal with the people who are really critical towards others and they're critical towards themselves. But it's the people who have one and not the other that drive me crazy. 
Oh, they're very, they have very high standards for other people. But for themselves, ah, anything goes. That's how the Corinthians were towards Paul. Listen to what Alan Redpath says. Oh, this is precious. To examine yourself, in fact, is to submit to the examination and scrutiny of Jesus Christ, the Lord, and this never to fix attention on sin, but on Christ. And to ask him to reveal that in you which grieves his spirit, to ask him to give you grace that it might be put away and cleansed in his precious blood. Self-examination takes the chill away from your soul. It takes the hardness away from your heart. It takes the shadows away from your life. It sets the prisoner free. Look at yourself. And then Spurgeon points out, and I won't read it, but I'll paraphrase it. He says, it says there in verse 5, prove yourselves. Not just examine yourself, but prove yourself. You go out and you build a ship, right? You build a boat. And before you put it in the water, you examine it. You examine it very carefully. Any leaks? Is it built? You examine it carefully, right? It's a whole other thing to put that thing out in the water, isn't it? Then you're proving it. And many a Christian, oh, they examine their life, you know, in the theoretical way. Yes, yes. Friends, you go put it out in shoe leather and live it. You prove it. You examine yourself. Well, I don't think I'm filled with a bad temper and anger. Yes, yes, I think I'm dealing with that. Oh, yeah? Let's go see you prove it. Let's put you in that situation where that little bad temper guy cuts you off on the freeway. Now let's prove it. Right? It's a different thing. You can examine it, and then you need to prove it. And notice what he says here at the end of verse 5. Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. Paul knew that there were some among the Corinthian Christians who were disqualified for eternal life and salvation. Their thinking was worldly because they were of this world, not of the Lord. It's a hard truth to confront. But wouldn't you rather know now than when it's too late? Do you know what the word disqualified is in the original language in this passage in verse 5? It's simply the negative of the word test or approve in verse uh, 5. When he says, Prove yourselves. It's like saying, unless you are unapproved, you failed the test. If we don't examine ourselves and test ourselves now, we may find that we ultimately do not pass the test and are disqualified. No, instead, we're to look at ourselves. And what do we look for? When you examine yourself, what are you supposed to look at? Look, it says in verse 5. Prove yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? I think that's what you can look for, right? Look and see if Jesus Christ is in you. Don't look for perfection. Don't look for perfection in yourself. Don't look for perfection in others. But look to see if there is real evidence of Jesus Christ in you. Real evidence. You, you know Spurgeon's got something good to say on that one, don't you? Here it is. Now, what is it to have Jesus Christ in you? The Roman Catholic hangs the cross on his heart. The true Christian carries the cross in his heart. And a cross inside the heart, my friends, is one of the sweetest cures for a cross on the back. If you have a cross in your heart, Christ crucified in you, the hope of all glory... All the crosses of this world's trouble will seem to you light enough 
and you will easily be able to sustain it. Christ in the heart means Christ believed in, Christ beloved, Christ trusted, Christ espoused, Christ communed with, Christ as our daily food, and ourselves as the temple and the palace wherein Jesus Christ daily walks. But it means to have Christ in you. So prove yourself. Test yourself. Examine yourself. Notice what Paul adds here in verse 6. He says, but I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. I think Paul's anticipating a counter question here. Paul, you ask us to examine ourselves. Well, why don't you examine yourself? Maybe you aren't a Christian after all, Paul. Paul dismisses this question out of hand. It's so apparent that he is not disqualified that he simply trusts they recognize the truth of it. Hey, come on, guys. We know this. Even so, Paul will admit. Notice here in verse 7. Now, I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. Paul will admit that he might seem disqualified. If someone is judging the genuine Christian life by worldly standards, by power and success, if you're going to judge the real Christian life by worldly standards, then you might just take a look at Paul and say, boy, he's disqualified. You see, it's by these standards that Job's friends were convinced that the hardships were all a result of sin in Job's life. But one could only say that by judging with worldly standards. Look at our lives. Verse 8. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Don't you see Paul's heart? He wants to build them up. He wants to build them up, not to destroy them. He wants them to be complete. Did you notice that in verse 9? And this we also pray that you may be made complete. That's what he wants. To build them up. To edify them. To make them complete. Paul wanted to build up the Corinthian Christians to make them complete. Now, what's interesting is that we understand that the Corinthian Christians were really strong in some areas of their walk. Paul says that they were uh, abounding in spiritual gifts and in their personal testimony. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But the problem was their strength was not complete. You see, they were not like a building that's just a foundation and all rubble around it. They weren't like that. Wow, you know, we need to do some building work here. Let's build it up. No, you know what the Corinthian church was like? Not like a building, just a foundation, a bunch of rubble. They were like a building that had a foundation, and one wall was built perfectly, and another wall was about half finished, and then the other two walls were just rubble. Paul says, I want to make you complete. Yeah, you're fine here. You're okay here. You're halfway done here, but look at these. I mean, there's so much to do. And all the Corinthian Christians were looking at the finished wall and saying, boy, isn't that beautiful? That's the most beautiful I've ever seen in my life. That's great. You know, and their backs turned to the, to the broken down rubble behind them. Paul says, examine yourself. Prove yourself. Don't just look at the area where you're doing strong. Examine yourself. Oh, if the Corinthian Christians would do that, then Paul wouldn't have to come to them with the mouth. 
How beautiful. The time of teaching and fellowship Paul could have among these guys if they'd get all this out of the way before he came. Then he could come and it would just be sweet fellowship. It would just be deeper and deeper into the things of God instead of Paul cleaning house. Then they could have some fun together in the Lord. So Paul pleads with them, get it straight before I come. Verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That word farewell there in verse 11 is actually much better translated rejoice. Are you sick, Paul? After the way you slapped these guys up and down, you pistol whipped them with words? Finally, my brethren, rejoice. You know, Paul means it. He's been severe with the Corinthian Christians, but it's all been said to the end that they would enjoy the joy of walking in a right relationship with God. So he exhorts them. Do you see what I was talking about? He exhorts them there at the very end of verse 11. Become complete. Do it. As Christians, we shouldn't excuse and neglect areas of our life by saying, you know, I'm just not into that. Or that's just my weak point. You know, yeah, I got this terrible temper. That's just my weak point. Everybody has this. Yeah, I got this problem with lust. Everybody's got it. That's just mine. You just excuse it. No. Brother, become complete. Complete. God wants to do that work in you. Now, we certainly can't work on everything at once before the Lord. I don't want to overwhelm anybody tonight. You can't work on everything at once, and God doesn't want to work on everything at once in your life. But we can certainly have a heart to become complete. So he says, I love verse 11, Be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. You see, by exhorting the Corinthian Christians to do these things, he's proving an important point. These are at least partially in our power to do. If it's not in your power to be of good comfort, why would Paul tell them to? If it's not in your power to be of one mind with other people, why would Paul tell them to do that? If it's not in your power to live in peace, why would Paul ever tell us to do that? But you see, we often think that our comfort, our being of one mind, and our being at peace with others, it just depends on them, not on us. Well, I'm happy to be of one mind with them when they come around to my mind. Well, I'm happy to be at peace with them as soon as they give in to me. Friends, in part it's true. It does depend on them, right? But in part it depends on us. So do everything you can. Let me just give you a little prescription. Why don't you do your part and let God worry about their part? So do everything you can. It costs something to work hard, to be of good comfort, to be of one mind, and to live in peace. If you've ever been in that situation, it costs you something. It's hard. But the reward's worth it. You see the end of verse 11? Look at it. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Don't you want that? Isn't that worth it? And why are you holding on to it? Why are you holding on to that bitterness? Why are you holding on to that conflict? Do you see the reward? You give it up. You do everything you can do. You say, well, what if they don't meet me halfway? 
Tough luck to them. Then they're not going to have the God of peace, of love and peace be with them. But you can have it. You do what you're supposed to do. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I want it. Perhaps, my friends, if you feel that God isn't with you, perhaps it's because you're resisting and rejecting his call to be of good comfort, to be of one mind. Wrap it up here, verses 12, 13, 14. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Verse 14 is kind of a unique passage in all the scriptures. Nowhere do you find in the whole New Testament any place where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned together in this kind of blessing. Of course, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned together in many passages, but not in this kind of blessing. Paul wanted the Corinthian Christians to be completely blessed by everything God is. Paul concludes this letter with the idea of completeness. God, completely in who he is, wants you to be complete in your Christian life. So friends, become complete. Now, as I say that, that may sound so depressing to you. Because you say, I have got so far to go. Well, can I tell you that if you're in Christ, you're going to achieve it. And the final step is called resurrection. God just wants you to have a heart for it tonight. Say, you know what, Lord? I'm going to have a heart to become complete. I know I'm not there. I know I've got so much to work on. But Lord, that's what I want. That's your heart for me, God. I want it to be my heart for you. So let's become complete and pray before the Lord tonight. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just seek what's ours, but you sought us. Lord, even more than it could be said of Paul, you gladly would spend and be spent for us. That's you, Lord. That's you for us. So, Lord, our response to you tonight is just to give you everything, to be complete in you. Oh, we love you. We praise you, God. We ask that you let your word sink down deeply into our soul and make us complete in you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Clear our minds from worldly thinking. Let your word do it in us, Lord, so that you don't have to come to us with that mallet. But we can just hear your word and respond to it. Help us, Lord. We love you tonight and praise you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.